You're listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast, where we believe that every teacher deserves a coach, and every coach does too. I'm Chrissy Beltran, an instructional coach, resource creator, and coffee enthusiast. And I'm your host. Stay tuned for practical tips and honest coaching talk that will help you coach with confidence. Coach, and welcome to episode number 73 of Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast. I am your host, Chrissy Beltran, and today we are going to talk about your coaching role. You might be tired of me talking about this because I talk about it all the time. And that is because if you don't know what your coaching role is, and if you haven't told your teachers what your coaching role is, they don't know. They just don't know. They think you're there to do all kinds of weird stuff that has nothing to do with what you actually do. I don't know where they get these ideas from but they make them up as you go. <laughs> as you go along, they're making up ideas about what your job actually is. It's kind of like one of those little memes that were really popular for a while there that says, what my boss thinks I do, what my mom thinks I do, what my friends think I do, what I actually do. This is exactly like that. It's what your principal thinks you do, what your teachers think you do, what the students think you do, and what you actually do. <laughs> and none of those are the same. Everybody has their own idea of what you do. So what I wanna do today is I wanna share this article from Joellen Killian about the 10 roles of coaches. And this is, it's easy to find online. If you just search for 10 roles of coaches, it's gonna pop up. If you search for a coaching role, it'll probably pop up. And the idea is that Joellen Killian, who's actually been a guest on this podcast, uh, she is wonderful, shares 10 different roles that coaches serve. What I wanna do is I'm gonna talk to you a little bit about what that looked like when I was actually coaching. Um, and what that looks like in practice. And so I'm gonna share those 10 roles with you and then I'm gonna talk a little bit about whenever I was going through my day-to-day, -day, what did it look like whenever I was serving these 10 roles? So you can kind of get an idea of what it looks like from a real coach who actually tried to do these things. Did I do them all equally well? I did not. <laughs> I absolutely did not. But did I try? I did try. I tried really hard. So, <laughs> so I think that this is going to be helpful to you. It'll help you in thinking about how are you serving these 10 roles on your own campus. And if there's kind of a maybe a blind spot or an area that you haven't focused on as much, that should give you some ideas of ways that you could try something out um, to try to start meeting these roles and making sure that you're serving these for your teachers. So the first role that I'm going to talk about is the role of resource provider. I talked about this a few episodes ago as being one of the lower levels of support. And it actually is it's low level in terms of stress. <laughs> it's not low level in terms of actual support. Um, that was in episode 68 when I was sharing about the different levels of coaching support. And it, I called it a level one support because it is the least scary thing that a teacher can do is to say, can you recommend a resource for me? So as a resource provider, I may have, I personally would research different resources and invest in them if we have the money to do so. My principal would sometimes say, put together a list of what we need to buy for next year. And I would put together a list based on teacher need and you know, getting surveys and information from teachers as well as gaps that I saw whenever we were planning together. Being a co-planner with teachers really helps because it gives you an idea of what they've got and what they don't have and what you're always having to create from scratch so that you can look out into the world and figure out what is it that they need and I can get them that. If I have the funds, I'm gonna get it. So I really recommend spending time working alongside teachers and planning alongside teachers to make sure that the resources that you're investing in are actually things that they need. This is also a great way to start building a relationship with a teacher who really has not been excited about you yet. 
and they are out there. They are absolutely out there. We all know, we all have a couple of faces in our minds of teachers who were like, oh, you, eh, I can live without you. Um, they were not super psyched to have us in their classrooms. This is a good way to get into those classrooms because if you can find a book that is perfect for that teacher and you just know they will love it, you can take it to that teacher and you say, I thought of you when I saw this book and I just really thought you would like it. That's a big relationship builder right there because you know something about them. It demonstrates that you know something about them and it demonstrates that you thought about them when they weren't around and you cared enough to go show them and share that with them. So that's a huge one. If you can use that, that's a good way to get in the door of a classroom that has looked at you in the past with kind of a side eye. <laughs> the second role that Joellen writes about is data coach. And a data coach can look like a lot of different things. But specifically, the way that I did this in practice every single week is we had a standing meeting with our grade levels weekly to review data. Now, we didn't review data every week because we didn't have data every week. But we did, unfortunately, slash, you know, realistically, we assessed a lot. The district did require assessments at the end of every unit, and our units were short. So if we weren't assessing in writing, we were assessing in reading. If we weren't assessing in reading, we were assessing in math and then science. I mean, it was, it was frequent. So we always had some kind of data to look at, look at. And even though I was a literacy coach and I focused on reading and writing and social studies, I was responsible for reviewing data with one grade level regardless of the subject matter. So I would sit in on, on meetings with other grades in reading and writing so that I could support them in reviewing that data as well. Because it was important to me to know how things were going. I was helping them in planning, so I needed to know and stay on top of how those plans were panning out and seeing if kids were actually learning what we wanted them to learn. But I had one grade level each year that I was responsible for all the content areas in terms of reviewing that data. So that standing meeting was on the calendar every week. And if we needed to cancel it, we canceled it, which was just fine. I talked about this actually in an episode that I recorded recently with Christy L. Jerby. Um, we were talking about some assessment systems that could be helpful. This was back in March that this episode came out. And we were looking at those systems that could be helpful for her and her teachers. And we said one of them could be having a standing meeting on the calendar. It's just there because it's easier to take something off the calendar and cancel it than it is to add it. You know, once the school year gets started, it is so difficult to find the magical day that everybody's available because everyone has been booking things individually, which is normal. So if it's on the calendar every Wednesday, you know, okay, Wednesdays are not available. I'm not gonna schedule stuff on Wednesdays. And that way you can have that regular meeting when you need it, even if it's only every other week or every three weeks, but you know, don't book anything on Wednesdays, that's our standing meeting. So as a data coach, we would, I would sit with the teachers, we would take out an actual copy of the assessment, we would look through the data and kind of you know, record scores on each question so we could really see not just the standard that was not being met, but the wording of the question and why kids were choosing certain answer choices. We could go back into the text and find evidence ourselves in reading. We could you know, draw a model ourselves in math. And we could really sit together and, and talk about what does this data mean? Okay, this is coming out at 42%. But what does that mean? Just 42% doesn't tell me anything about my kids. I need to know why, what's happening and why it's happening. So we could have those conversations because I could serve as a data coach who was impartial. I, wasn't, I didn't have data to defend or to, <laughs> um, or to celebrate. I could just ask the questions. And that helped people think through some things. And then we took that information and we would use it to make a plan for next steps. 
which is so important. And if we're not getting to the next steps, then that's often why teachers feel like um, data meetings are not productive. So we need to make sure we have somewhere that that planning happens for the next steps, whether it's whole group or um, small group intervention, we need to respond to that data or else we're just looking at data for data's sake instead of looking at data for the purpose of bettering our instruction, which is the whole point. So that's how we handle the data coach role. I also would meet with individual teachers upon request or when necessary, if they were struggling to figure out something that was going on with their data or with their students or with their student learning. But specifically, we would look at data after every assessment and mini assessment together as a grade level team. The third role that we're gonna talk about is the curriculum specialist. A curriculum specialist actually does have to have a lot of knowledge. And you tend to see this more in coaches who specialize in content areas rather than a general instructional coach. An instructional coach may not have to have extensive knowledge in any specific content area because you may not be doing planning alongside teachers and you may not be providing those, those supports. But a, a coach who specializes in a content area or in a specific grade level band, you may be asked to know a lot of stuff. And I feel like literacy coaches and, and math coaches, we see this a lot, but they're asked to know everything <laughs> about that content area. Now that's not realistic, obviously, we don't know everything about any content area, but I had to have a real strength in reading and writing in order to support teachers in that curriculum. I had to understand the national standards as they were relevant to me, which you know, most of the time they were not because Texas is super, um, super de devoted to their own state standards. <laughs> But I had to understand them to the degree that some resources are written for national standards and not Texas stuff. So I had to kind of compare and see if it was relevant to us. I had to understand very, very well our state standards because that is what we are held accountable for in this state and what kids are held accountable for on their assessment. And I had to understand the state assessment very, very well because I had to make sure that whatever we were supporting kids through was actually going to prepare them for this. It's not that that's the most important thing at all, but if it's something we're expecting kids to do, we should really show them what they need to know to do it. So I really had to know the standards well, and I had to know best practices well, and I had to know the resources that we had. So we could pull all those things together, and I had to understand lesson design and how people learn. And so this is what we did. Every week, I met with three grade levels for 90 minutes each. We would plan for two weeks of instruction in reading and writing, and then we would try to squeeze social studies in there. But most of the time, an individual teacher would plan that and share that with the grade level. Just, just being realistic here. It would have been great to get to it, but it was a lot to plan in that short chunk of time. So we would bring our materials together. Teachers would do some pre-planning in that they would review the curriculum documents provided to us by the district and sort of come ready with certain materials they might like to use, certain kinds of activities that they thought would be helpful for teaching that specific content. And then I actually walked them through a planning process and I refined it over the years. We did a different things over time, but the one that I settled on, I really liked. The ones we finally got to that point was we would collaborate and share ideas in certain, um, about certain different components of our planning. And then we would sequence those ideas and structure them into specific daily plans. And that I felt like was a really strong process because it helped teachers share everything, get all the best ideas out on the table, and then pull from there to create a daily plan that whenever teachers walked away, they knew exactly what they were gonna do and they felt prepared. 
And that's really what we want our teachers to feel. We want them to feel knowledgeable and prepared. Um, that no matter what happens when they go back in that classroom, they have a plan. If they leave without a plan, they tend not to feel very good about the time they spent with you. <laughs> so I, I think curriculum specialist was one of my important roles. Different roles weigh heavier in different schools, but because we had new standards at the time that I started coaching and we had a new assessment and we had new materials, that was one that I spent a lot of time on because we were building that common language and that background knowledge with teachers in those best practices. So curriculum specialist is one of my big roles. It might not be as big of a role on your campus. Instructional specialist specifically is, is not just about what is taught, it's about how you teach. And that's specifically what Joelle and Killian says. She says, the coach supports teachers by helping with the how of teaching. And they collaborate in designing instruction to meet the needs of all students. So again, this happened during our PLC time in order to create lessons that were really going to meet the needs of our kids and take into consideration data and things like that. But on top of it, it was about adding in those instructional strategies, not just about what content was being taught, but really, how are we approaching this? And so I tried to keep a, a bank of really high impact strategies, and I actually share about this. I share about this and our whole thorough planning process that you can take, just you lift it right from the course. In the Confident Literacy Coach course, it tells you exactly how to plan with your teachers and how to build some high impact strategies in each content area that you can refer back to. I remember in college learning, and it was always true, I always found this to be true, if you use a strategy too much, it loses its power and you go through the motions and it's rote. But if you don't use it enough, kids don't have enough time to get good at the strategy so that they don't really ever benefit from the learning from that strategy. The first few times they're doing something, they're just learning how to do it. They're learning what you want them to do. After they've done it a few times, then they can really start to benefit from the experience of that strategy and what they're getting out of it. So I do recommend building a list of maybe five high impact strategies for each content area that are really gonna support your instruction. So whenever you're planning with teachers, you're building that common language and that common experience of those strategies, you can keep coming back to them and teachers can plug them into their plans because you know that this is a, this is a good one, this is a keeper and we really believe it's going to be effective in this specific area. Another role that coaches serve is a mentor. And mentors are often looked at as being for new teachers, right? Which is true, new teachers do need a mentor. But I personally believe all teachers need a mentor because mentors help you grow. And don't we wanna grow? Like all of us wanna grow. As a coach, I needed a mentor. I had, I had someone at my central office who was really supportive of me and I could look up to her and ask questions and, and just, I just learned so much just from watching her do her work. Teachers need that too. They need to have a mentor who can listen and support and guide. And you may not be the mentor of choice for every teacher. <laughs> but there were you know, a good group of teachers that would call me in and say, hey, I just need to talk this through. I just need to have somebody listen and see if this makes any sense. Am I overthinking this? Is this a good approach? What else could I do? I'm stuck. You really just kind of want to help them bounce ideas off of you and serve as a sounding board. I talked a little bit about that in the episode about different levels of support as well. A sounding board is a low level of support because it's not scary, but it is not poor support. It can be excellent and maybe all that teacher needed that day. So as a mentor, you make yourself available, you build the relationships, and then you show up 
and you do whatever it is that they need you to do. You listen, you plan, you support, you share ideas, and you push a little bit if needed. <laughs> so really, mentorship is one of the most enjoyable parts, I think, of instructional coaching because you really get to, to work with that teacher in a close relationship and get to know them as a teacher and as a person. Another role coaches serve is classroom supporter. A classroom supporter is whenever you're actually in that classroom and doing the work of coaching. And so this is what I talked about before as being a level three support because that is where magic happens. If you are in those classrooms, modeling, observing, and providing really good feedback, and planning alongside that teacher in order to deliver lessons a long time alongside that teacher, that's the coaching cycle, and that's the meat, of the bread and butter of our coaching work because it is so impactful. It might seem sometimes like whenever you are working with a teacher in that close proximity, you're spending a lot of time with one person, but the impact you can make on the teaching of that one person is so astounding. And you have to think about, it's not just impacting the 20, 25, 18, however many students they have this year. It's impacting the students that they will have every year for the rest of their career. I have had people who have been supportive of me and I have learned things from those people that have completely changed the way that I teach. I'm a different teacher because of certain people. And without them, without them investing that time in me, I wouldn't be where I am. So you can be the person that gets in those classrooms and makes that change happen up close. And it's a lot of work, <laughs> but you can do it. So this looks like whenever I would go work in, with a teacher, for example, one year we had a situation in which we had a lot of movement with teachers and we had a teacher who was thrown in to fourth grade after being a kindergarten teacher for years. She was thrown into fourth grade and it was like three weeks after school started <laughs> and it was terrible. And not, I mean, she wasn't terrible, but it was a terrible situation. And she was really trying hard to keep it together because she loved kindergarten. And that's a hard move to make, especially after school has started. So it's just one of those unavoidable things. But it, I spent a lot of time as a classroom supporter in that classroom because not only was I going to do the regular work that I would do with any teacher of supporting and planning and doing coaching cycles. I was there to support her with lots of different elements of that, of learning the ropes in fourth grade and learning what writer's workshop looked like in fourth grade and what reader's workshop looked like and how she could order, organize her classroom library and what books even go in the classroom library for fourth graders. So I spent a lot of time in that classroom and I saw a real turnaround because she took on so much learning and she invested so much in, in that process that she really, it's just, it was incredible the growth that she made in fourth grade. She was always a good teacher, but she needed that support in a new grade level. So we don't always just provide classroom support to teachers who are new or struggling. We provide classroom support to anybody who's going to get better, which hopefully is all of us. Another role that coaches serve is learning facilitator. This is from Joelle and Killian. And a learning facilitator looks different depending on your role as it's de defined by your, your school or your district. I personally did a lot of professional development for our teachers. And while I did have some flexibility with the choices of kind of what I focused on, 
most of the time I was told, you're going to spend this half day on this, you're going to spend this full day on this. However, within those topics, I could adjust the experiences to support things that I knew my teachers needed support in. So some of the things that I would do to make sure that that learning was relevant to our teachers and that they were really getting something that they needed is I would go through the classrooms with my brain just wide open <laughs> just to see what I saw and to note what it is that was holding us back or what is it that if we could just really get good at this one thing, we would see a really big change in our students and in our teachers. And then I could weave that into our professional learning opportunities, regardless of what the topic was. So for example, if we were supposed to work on writing and we were going to focus on expository writing and writing strategies and things like that, but I noticed that we had a real issue with the writing process in expository writing, then I could actually make sure that as we were working on those writing strategies during our workshops, I was actually leading teachers through the writing process and making sure that they had opportunities to try it out themselves so when they went back to the classroom, they could use that with their kids more effectively. This requires you to always be thinking about what is it that our teachers absolutely need? What's the next thing that, they, that I can add to their toolbox that if they have this tool, they could build something even better? And it's kind of like whenever you're working with your students in your own classroom and your teacher. You're working with them in whatever content area, but you're noticing things. You're noticing their reading comprehension whenever you're working in science. You're noticing they're not making connections. And that is the one thing that if they could do that, if they could connect their learning to another content or another text, then that could blow up everything for them and, and make everything 100 times better. And so then you go back to guided reading and you teach your kids about making connections and then you build it into science and you build it into social studies and you build it into reading and you build it into writing and you build it into math. It's the same idea. We're always wanting to be aware of what does our school need so that we can provide them with what they need through those learning opportunities. This also might look like book studies or focus groups or getting teachers to visit other classrooms. I'm a huge proponent of having teachers visit each other. I think we spend way too much time in, in locked behind our own doors. And we know lots of teachers who will say, I'm gonna go to my room, I'm gonna close the door, I'm gonna do what's best for kids. Sometimes I get it. Mandates are unreasonable, and maybe that is what needs to happen. Sometimes though, that can be used as an excuse not to learn something new. And I don't think that's okay. So the easiest way to get somebody to see something new and think maybe it would be cool is if they go see it in somebody else's classroom who they already like and trust. If they know, trust, and like them, they're more likely to try it out. If they don't know, trust, and like you, they might not want to hear from you, but they might want to hear from their colleague down the hallway. So as a learning facilitator, you can create the opportunities for, for teachers to learn from each other. I also used to have teachers step up and say, during PLC, if we were going to be modeling strategies, we were going to be learning about something new, I would have a teacher model something really cool that they did in their classroom. If I was in a classroom visiting and I saw that they were using a really neat strategy that worked for kids, I could say, hey, can you share that with the other teachers during PLC? 
just 15 minutes at the beginning of PLC so we can integrate that into our planning because I really think that they would love that strategy. And most of the time they were like, oh, I'm a little nervous about that, but they got more comfortable with it over time. And I believe it's so supportive of their leadership growth and their own professional knowledge that they have to really think about, why am I doing what I'm doing? What, why, why is this so purposeful? How do I think through this process so they can teach it to other people? And so I totally recommend setting up colleagues to teach each other and you, that way you don't always have to be the boss of learning because you really shouldn't always be the boss of the learning. You want colleagues to learn, to, to learn from each other so that we can value the knowledge that's in the room because everybody in the room has some kind of special knowledge that we can learn from each other. One of the, the next roles, there are a few roles left, three roles left. The next one is school leader. Now a school leader looks different depending on your campus. Personally, I was part of the leadership team, and as part of that leadership team, we would have discussions and dialogue about the growth of the school, what we saw happening overall, and how we could set goals and support those goals through our work over time. So if we knew that there was a real issue with something happening on our campus, for example, one year management was a huge issue we could see. We had a lot of teachers from different backgrounds and, and new teachers, and so there was no real alignment in management, and kids were being held accountable to very different standards at different places. And the issue with that is that's really stressful, and kids didn't always know what the expected behavior was because it hadn't been formally introduced to them. So we talked a lot about that, and then from there, we could create a plan to support that during professional development and during our classroom visits as well. Serving on that leadership team helped me contribute to my school by creating a direction and supporting that direction throughout the year. Catalyst for Change is a really interesting role that coaches serve that Joellen Killian talks about. And the idea is that we are, we actually, some people would call it pulling, <laughs> some people call it pushing, some people call it encouragement, um, some people call it inspiration. To me, it's all the same thing. We get people to move. We get people to move because catalysts make things happen. So whether we do that through questioning or creating opportunities from that for them to learn from each other or, or creating a book study where people can try out some new things and, and apply them to their classroom or modeling a new strategy. We're always pushing the envelope a little bit. And that can be a stressful position to be in because sometimes people don't like being pushed or pulled or inspired or whatever. <laughs> they just don't always like it. Um, because sometimes people really love the status quo because they feel like it's worked well for them in the past. And it can be difficult to be the person who's doing that inspiring or motivating to try something different. I have found when we look at issues that teachers are having and we work on the things that they are concerned about, they are more likely to listen to possible changes that we could make because they're wanting to figure out a solution to that issue that they're having as well. Steve Barkley says that one question you can ask teachers to get to the bottom of this is to say, Tell me about a student that you are having to work way too hard with. And that way they can tell you who it is that they're working with and what they're doing. And you can figure out what can we do to make your life a little easier there? What can we do to change that up to where you're not having to invest so much time and so much effort and not get the return that you're looking for? That puts the onus on the teacher to figure out 
yeah, why am I working so hard there? Something, something has to be, it's got to be something different that I can do, right? And then they want to learn something different. They want to try. They want to change. So if we can create the openings for change and the, the opportunities, then whenever teachers are ready to step through those doorways, we can be there to say, let me help you. Let's move. Let's try this. Let's, now we're ready to move. We're ready to make a change. Let's figure something out together. So being a catalyst for change is the spark that ignites that fire. And the truth is, it's really it's exciting and really fun to do, but it's not always enjoyable <laughs> because not everybody is excited in having a spark. <laughs> the last role that Joellen Killian shares about is learner. The idea is that if we're not always learning, then why are we there? We have to be the ongoing learner. We have to be the, the person who models constantly that we are growing and getting better and changing because we can't ask teachers to do something that we are ourselves unwilling to do. So we need to always reflect on our own work and think about what we can do differently and make adjustments. So myself, one thing that I used to do is I had goals that I would set for the year and then I would look at those goals throughout the year and kind of reflect on where we were and where we were moving to the, toward those goals and then what were my next steps. I would do this probably about once a month because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't forgetting about this, this stuff that I wanted to get better at. Whenever I saw that there was a need for something in the classroom, like a real issue that was impacting student learning, I would go independently learn about those things because I wanted to be prepared to be the catalyst for change and the learning facilitator and the curriculum specialist in those areas. So for example, one year, you know, it just became clear over time that our students really struggled with grammar, significantly struggled. And many of our students were learning English as an additional language to whatever language slash languages they already spoke. And that was a really hard transition. It required some real explicit instruction, but many of our teachers did not feel prepared to actually give them that explicit instruction. So I researched and learned and dug in and figured out one, one of probably the best strategies that I have found for this is mentor sentences. And I think they're so worthwhile um, because it's authentic instruction. It's not teaching from error because people tend to love to do those daily oral language passages where there's errors in them and kids have to find them. But then it's always the same kids finding the errors and it's always um, the same types of errors that pop up and, and it's not really helping kids learn the way English works. It's just showing them who already can find the mistakes. If you can't find the mistakes the first time and I don't teach you how to find, I don't teach you anything differently for the second time, you still can't find the mistakes. So we don't want to teach from error. So I love mentor sentences because it's teaching from a good model and then kids get to apply that and they develop the language of talking about grammar and writing and, and the choices that authors make as they write so that they can apply those decisions and choices into their own writing. I went and learned about this independently and then I built a resource around it so that I could share it with my teachers that was aligned to our state standards. And then I tried it out in the classroom. We practiced it, we modeled it, we tried it out. And then we tried it out in another classroom. And then we shared it with the teachers in other grades. And then we built alignment around that. But if I hadn't been an independent learner who was out seeking a possible uh, next step that would, that would move us in a better direction for our grammar instruction, if we had just kept doing the same thing over and over again, we wouldn't have seen any growth in that area. But instead, teachers learned a new strategy because I put myself out to learn something new. So we have to be always learning. 
we're always digging into new information. We need to read the research. We need to read the articles. We need to watch the videos. And that doesn't mean that you have to do that 100% of the time. But in order for us to be really supportive of teachers, we have to know some stuff. <laughs> That's just the truth of it. And so one of the things that we can do is invest in our own learning over time so that we are prepared to serve as those special roles, as the you know, catalyst for change, a school leader, a learning facilitator, and, and specialists in instruction and curriculum. So those are the 10 roles that coaches serve as described by Joelle and Killian. And that is pretty much how I did those roles as I was a, a coach on a campus and what that really looked like. I hope that that gives you an idea of what those roles can look like whenever you are actually on a campus and you know doing work with teachers and figuring out how you can demonstrate your value in these different ways. One thing that you can do, because we know it's important for you to know your role, but we also know that if your teachers don't know what it is, there's, there's really no point <laughs> because they're not going to ask you to do any of those things or be comfortable with you doing any of those things if they don't know what they are. So I actually have a free download for you if you haven't grabbed it already. It's the coaching menu. And it's a really easy tool that you can use to share your role with teachers, specifically at how you are offering services and what they can ask you for and what kinds of things you can do for them. So that is going to be at buzzingwithmissb.com slash episode 73. That's episode capital E, number seven, number three. And you can get that free download on that page so that you can print it out and you can either use it to build your own menu and you know, start with that as your inspiration. Or you can use it as is and just share it with teachers and that way they can figure out exactly what it is you do around here. <laughs> Another place that you could check out that would be really helpful if you were doing some thinking around this idea is my First Steps in Instructional Coaching ebook. And you can actually get that at teacherspayteachers.com. If you go to my store, Chrissy Beltron, Buzzing with Miss B, you can search for either part of that and I should pop up, um, no problem. That is the first steps in instructional coaching ebook that really teaches you how I began as a coach. I wrote it after a few years of coaching, so I had um, it was fresh in my mind, and it also teaches you some of the things that I wish I had done. <laughs> so definitely visit my store, Chrissy Beltran, Buzzing with Miss B, and you can search for the first steps in instructional coaching ebook and it will pop up there for you it, the instructional coaching ebook startup guide it'll pop up for you and it will be a really good place for you to start if you are a new coach or maybe i'd say zero to three years there's a lot of information there that will be helpful to you in establishing yourself as a coach and figuring out how to do all the stuff that coaches have to do so that's the coaching startup guide you can check that out in my TPT store. Next week, we are gonna be talking about building relationships with teachers. And I had to learn the hard way about building relationships, so I'm really excited to share that with you because I think it's going to be meaningful and I feel like I learned a lot because I had to undo a lot of mistakes. So, <laughs> so until next week, happy coaching. Thank you for listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast. Want more coaching ideas? Check me out at buzzingwithmissb.com and on Instagram at buzzingwithmissb. If you love the show, share it with a coach who would love it too, or leave me a review on iTunes. It's free and it helps others find this show. Happy coaching. Happy coaching.